0: Welcome to The Marketect, a podcast series where leadership and product marketing intersect. The Marketect is for and about the world's best product marketing leaders, chief marketing officers, and their go-to-market partners. Each episode will help you unlock your professional potential as our guests share how they build impactful teams and optimize their go-to-market. This podcast is presented by Pavilion, powered by Casted, and produced by Share Your Genius. Welcome and enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to the Market Tech, the podcast series where leadership and product marketing intersect. Today, we're going to look into two powerful tools to help buyers confidently make purchase decisions. Why? Because now more than ever, sales and marketing folks, my people at B2B companies, they need help. Resources, budgets are being cut, and these folks are being told the dreaded. Do more with less, do more with less. And moreover, B2B buying, it's more challenging than ever. The stakes are high for buyers in this economic climate. A wrong decision could lead to bad outcomes for both the company and the buyer. This is why 40 to 60% of B2B software purchases end in no decision, courtesy of Matt Dixon, Jolt Effect. shout out Matt. Buyers fail to buy, Because they can't figure out how to confidently make a decision. Buyers are more worried about messing up than they are about missing out. And we can do better. Well-defined positioning can be a powerful efficiency tool for B2B companies. Because positioning means focus. And focus avoids waste. However, positioning alone is not going to ensure your success in 2023 and beyond. You need a second tool to drive growth efficiency, a sales pitch. Without further ado, my sales and marketing peeps. Here today is one of my favorite people in this biz. She's been on the podcast. She's Aww. been in the marketing community for years. She was our first speaker in Toronto, 2016. That's April, the truth right there. That's actually true. April of 2016, which is, yeah, crazy. And
2: April, We were babies back then, Rowan we were just, we're absolute babies. Look at us now. We're old people. Instead of hair.
1: uh, Yeah. I didn't have
2: any wrinkles. Look at us now.
1: (laughs) So April, (laughs) you've authored the the book on positioning. Obviously awesome. And she's not done. She decided to write another book. Thank God. Because we got the positioning nailed. Thank you, April. We need to take it a step further. We need to nail our sales pitch. So April. Thank you for joining the show. And I have to ask, where did the idea for this upcoming book, Sales Pitch, come from?
2: Hey, well, first of all, thanks for that introduction. That's really nice. And it's great to be here. It's always good chatting with you. You know, I don't consider myself a book writer. (laughs) And I wrote the first book because I really felt like we didn't have a good how-to book on how to do positioning. And I found that really frustrating. It took me a long time to figure out a methodology for actually doing positioning. And so once I had it, I thought, you know what, this is a book that needs to exist. We need to have a book that tells us one, two, three, four, five, these are the steps. This is how we're going to go and get our positioning nailed. So that's what the first book was all about. In that book, interestingly, at the very end, it says, hey, so you want to test your positioning. Here's how you do it. You take your positioning, you translate it into a sales pitch, you pull in your best sales rep, train the sales rep on that sales pitch." then go and do it a bunch of times with qualified prospects. You probably need to tune in a little bit. And then once you know you've got that nailed, then good. The thing is good. It's better than the old pitch. That's the pass fail criteria. We know it's good. And then that pitch and the positioning goes to marketing and they can use that to figure out new messaging for the homepage or anywhere else. And so in the book, I end with this idea, like we'll just turn it into a sales pitch. And I had this thought, like, do I have to teach people how to make a sales pitch. And I thought, oh man, if I get into that, A, it's a whole other book and B, there's going to be religion about how to, you know, what's the right way to do a sales pitch, whatever, whatever. And I just don't want to fight that fight. So I put a little thing in there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, here's seven components. I didn't even use the real components that I used because I didn't want to be too contentious. And I didn't want to have people say, what does that thing mean? You know, thought, that's not the point of the book. And I just wrapped it up, put a bow on it and sent it out. I'm working with clients. And when you come and do an engagement with me, we never stop at just the positioning. We do the positioning and then we take the positioning and we turn it into a sales story. Because if you don't, then sales doesn't know how to pitch it. And so marketing's happy because they know what the value props are and they know who they're targeting and all that good stuff you get from clear positioning. But the sales team doesn't necessarily know how to pitch it. So what I'm discovering from doing like, 200 of these workshops is every company that comes to me their current sales pitch is not that great <laughs> and not only is it not that great it was never built with a structure it, right. it like almost everyone's sales pitch had sort of organically evolved over the, the literally the length of time the company has been alive And nobody ever throws out the sales pitch and builds a new one from scratch. They're just, they're evolving. They're like, oh, we got a new release. We're going to stick this slide in. Sometimes you get a new head of sales or new head of marketing. And they'll say, hey, put these two slides in. And so the structures are all different and the way you do, it's all different. And so when I'm working with clients, I'd say, well, look, we got brand new positioning. We got to throw that old pitch out and do a new one. Mm -hmm. And here's the structure we're going to use to do it. And everybody's sitting in the workshop going, Whoa, <laughs> sales pitch thing. You know, like I said, I, I work with a lot of companies, including really big companies, and nobody seemed to really have this figured out. So that's where the idea came from.
1: And before we get into deep dive into sales pitch, if you don't mind, let's take a step back and, and let's. Yeah. Pretend, no one's watched the show before. No one's read obviously awesome, which is massive mistake on your part. Big if you mistake. So yeah, uh, <laughs> but. Can you give us a recap on positioning before we go into sales pitch?
2: It's interesting because it's really old idea. It's one of these foundational marketing concepts, you know, and everybody's like, we know what positioning is, but in reality, like I think it's so old and foundational that people don't actually all think about it the same way. So some people will come to me and they'll say, Oh, positioning and messaging. That's the same thing. I'm like, actually, no positioning is kind of an input to messaging. Or they'll say, oh yeah, you mean the brand positioning. And I'm like, oh, this one really bugs me, right? There's positioning, there's branding. These two things are different. And so in my mind, positioning is kind of foundational to that stuff. You kind of have to have this figured out before you do messaging, before you do branding. If we think about everything we do in marketing and sales as the house, positioning is the foundation upon which the house is built. So my definition of positioning is positioning defines how our offering, our product is the best in the world At delivering something, some value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. So if we think about it, positioning defines, who's my competition? Like if Mm. you didn't exist, what would a customer do instead? And that's kind of like, who do we have to position against? The second component piece of positioning is, what have we got that's different than them? And we start with capabilities or distinct capabilities that are different from the alternative approaches. Then we can take those capabilities and map it to differentiated value. Nobody cares about your features. They care about what your features could do for their business. And so we map that to value. That's our differentiated value that says, look, we're the only company on the planet that can deliver this combination of this, this, and this. The features are tucked in underneath that value as here's how we do it. The next component piece of positioning is best fit or target customers. We're never selling to just anybody, particularly in B2B. So if we look at our value, who really, really cares a lot about that value? What are the characteristics of a target account that make them a really good fit for our stuff? So that's best fit customers. And then the last one's market category. Like, are you email or are you chat? Are you a database or are you business intelligence tool? There's a lot of overlap between these things. And for a customer to figure out what you're all about, we have to kind of pick a good context to position the product in that makes this value kind of make sense to these people as a starting point. So my book, Obviously Awesome, is all about a methodology to work through those five component pieces and how you might do that inside your company with a cross-functional team that includes marketing, sales, product, the CEO, founders, if you're a startup, And customer success and whatever. So I get a cross functional team together. We work through this methodology. We come up with these five component pieces that define this stuff. Most weak positioning, in my experience in B2B companies, it comes from a couple of places. Like the most common place it comes from is in B2B, marketing and sales don't really see eye to eye on a handful Mm -hmm. of those component pieces, or product and sales doesn't see eye to eye, or product and marketing doesn't see eye to eye. The CEO and the sales team don't see eye to eye. So we do this as a cross-functional team effort. And what we get is agreement and alignment. Okay, let's all agree. Here's who we compete with. Here's how we're different. This is the value we can deliver. No one else can. These are the people we're trying to go after. This is the market we're going to win. If you get that straight, everything you do in marketing and sales is going to be better.
1: Love it. And once you have those five elements in hand and when you workshop with your clients, you have this powerful, strategic positioning document. And then you've seen them take this document and try to translate it into a sales pitch. What are the mistakes that you've seen as they try to develop the sales pitch?
2: Well, so let me tell you what normally happens, right? Marketing will, even if they're working with a cross-functional team, we get the positioning done. Marketing's all happy because they've got differentiated value, which is the cornerstone of your messaging. And they're like, great. I'm going to go forklift all the messaging on the homepage. We're going to talk about this value we're doing now. It's going to be really aimed at these kind of customers. It's going to be great. So they go off and do that stuff. Sales, on the other hand, is like, you know, marketing's like, what do you think about this position? They're like, great, great. Yeah, it looks great. It looks great. And then they just carry on and use the same old pitch they always used. Or what happens is marketing notices that. And they say, well, that sucks. That's the old positioning. We don't want that. So marketing, independent of sales, we'll build a new pitch deck mm. and they'll heave that sucker over the wall and say, you must use this now. And sales will go, Hmm, that's interesting. That actually looks like a shit pitch deck. <laughs> I don't think I'll use that. I'll keep using the one or they'll pretend they're going to use it. And in a couple of weeks, marketing will come back and say, Hey, you're not using the deck we gave you. And they'll say, try it. It didn't work. Old one works better. And CEO is not going to argue with that. CEO is going to go, look, let the salespeople do the thing that works, man. (laughs) And so there's this gap. Like marketers know what to do with positioning. Salespeople are like, well, how does this transform into a narrative? Or even you'll have these sales teams that are just doing product walkthrough demos. And people don't even think the positioning should change that. They're like, well, the product didn't change. I'm just doing a product walkthrough demo. How does that change? It doesn't. So nothing needs to change over here. We'll just just keep doing the same thing we're always doing. So that's usually what happens.
1: Got it. If you have the positioning doc, you're about to get into your sales pitch. What's the relationship between these two frameworks?
2: In my opinion, a a good sales pitch is a reflection of your positioning. It is the Mm -hmm. story form of your positioning, to put it one way. If you look at my sales pitch structure, I've basically broken it down into eight components. And every one of those components maps to something in your positioning. So it doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It actually relates to the position. Even if what you do, the majority of what you do in a first sales call is a demo. Even that needs to reflect your positioning.
1: Brilliant. So your positioning has five elements and you discuss them. What are the different elements in a
2: sales pitch? So let me give you a little background on how I came up with this thing in the first place, just because I think it's important to know where this came from. So, When I was a little Jr. product marketer, you know, one of the first things I did was work on a sales pitch for this product that we were doing. But, you know, when I say working on it, it was like adding two slides into the sales pitch that already existed. So there was this sales pitch that everybody loved. And the, the structure of the pitch was basically a product walkthrough. Like basically the customer would get on the phone and we'd say, okay, here we go. This is how we log in. That we'd look at this. There's seven drop-down menus at the top. Let's go through every one. Two, three, four, five, here's what they do. You know, and we might have had like a slide that that showed like the, what we call the affectionately called the NASCAR slide, where you know there's a whole bunch of logos on a slide. Look at us. We're not just a little company. We got all these customers. I think we had a company overview slide and a NASCAR slide, and that was it. And sometimes when we we're being really fancy. We'd walk through a customer case study. But otherwise, if we had an hour, we would spend 55 minutes (laughs) doing a product walkthrough, and we might spend four minutes on the other stuff. And when I went startup to startup to startup at the beginning of my career, they all looked like that. The variation on that one was some people like to start with a definition of the problem. Mm. So I worked at a bunch of companies that basically had fancy databases. And so the problem statement was the same. (laughs) And so the problem was, you got too much data, man, <laughs> and it's really hard to analyze it. You wish you had a better database, right? And then we did the product walkthrough. So it was the same. It was a product walkthrough with a little like, hey, you got a problem, right, customer? <laughs> and then we jumped into that. I talked to a few companies that will do this thing, which I call sales therapy. And you see this a lot of more enterprise-y kind of companies where the sales rep will come in and they'll do customer discovery at the beginning of the sales pitch. So they'll be like, okay, we're going to get to this product walkthrough, but first tell me your problems. And there'll be this set of questions, which is like, what are your problems? Have you looked at other solutions? What are your requirements? You must have a list of requirements. Please tell them to us. And then we would try to on the fly in the call, point out the things that sort of lined up with what the customer already said they wanted so that that you'd see a bit of that. And so then I got a job at IBM. And I was launching a product at IBM and my boss showed up and said, hey, we're doing this launch. you got to build a sales pitch for the sales reps. And I said, great. And it came with this bloody big binder. It's a great big thing. And he goes, and leaves it on my desk. And this is the 59,000 step process of building a sales pitch at IBM. And I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And so I hated this thing so much. Like for the first like couple of months I was working on this sales pitch, I was like, this is like overkill. Like everything we do at IBM, why is it got to be so hard? However, after I built a bunch of sales pitches with this thing, not everything in there I thought was genius. And a lot of it was very specific to IBM. But Mm. there were two or three things in there that I really, really thought were smart. The first one was the way we started a pitch. So we never started a pitch with jumping straight to the product ever. We never started a pitch with the problem. We always started the pitch with a discussion of IBM's Insight into the market. So we would come in and we would say, Hey, you know, we're IBM and we believe that the biggest thing that you need to understand about this is innovation. All the customers that we work with are really trying to do innovative new things with data. And then they would move to, Well, if you're really worried about innovation with data, let's look at your options for how to get that from the different ways you could approach the problem. And so they always started with this conversation and then we would do discovery in that context. So we'd set the frame for the discussion with our insight and then we would do discovery and be like, does that resonate with you? How have you tried to solve that? What are the things you're looking at now? What are you doing now? What other things are you looking at? And so we always started with this insight and the insight was not generic, like a problem statement. It was very specific to us. The second thing that was genius about the way IBM pitched is everything, everything was about our differentiated value. Everything. Even that insight pointed you right from the very first note of the sales call towards our differentiated value. We literally framed the conversation in a way that was the first step towards our differentiated value. And if we did give you a product walkthrough, it wasn't just drop down list, drop down list, drop down list. We'd say, look, we're the only company on the planet that can give you this. We'd explain the value, and then we'd show you how we did it. And then we say, look, the second thing, we're the only people that can give you this. Let me show you how to do that. We never showed you how to log into a product. Everybody knows how to log into a product. That's not differentiating. The entire product walkthrough was oriented around differentiated value. The entire sales pitch was architected to answer this question, why pick us over the other guys? Mm-hmm. So anyways, I so I became a convert to these two pieces in particular. When I left IBM, I went to a little startup and me and the head of sales were hired at the same time. They had the worst sales pitch I've ever seen in my life. And so me and him sat down together and then I hauled out the binder, which I had conveniently stolen from IBM (laughs) and said, hey, we should steal these two things from this. And so we re-architected the sales pitch using that. So we kind of like startupified the IBM structure, took out a bunch of stuff that you wouldn't use because you're not IBM. We redid the sales pitch with starting with this insight and then Mm -hmm. everything else oriented towards our value. And that sales pitch was rock and roll. We grew really fast and then hilariously, we got acquired by IBM. But after that, I was a convert. And so I've been using an evolving version of this sales pitch structure ever, ever since. So it's been like 15 years or something. And even as a consultant, now everybody that works with me, we do the positioning and then we do the sales pitch thing. And I say to clients, I say, look, if you have a sales pitch structure that you like better, we'll use that. And everybody's like, uh," you know, and I'm like, okay, my workshop, we're going to use mine. (laughs) So that's where this pitch structure comes from. Like, you know, I didn't have a meeting at a coffee shop and have some guy tell me that's how he does it. Like this thing came from a bunch of research that IBM did into their clients and all this other stuff. And then it's been perfected with hundreds of folks.
1: I love it. And and so can you walk through just the different components of this pitch? So you yeah. mentioned we start with insights, market insights, but
2: yeah. So think about it this way. Okay. In this pitch structure, there are two very big pieces to this structure. There's what we call the setup, and then yeah. there's the follow through. The setup is all about the market. It's not about us. It's about the market. The follow through is all about us. The setup's very important because in the setup phase, we are doing a bunch of things there. So The first thing we're trying to do is get the customer aligned to our point of view on the market. Which is different than everybody else's point of view on the market. we're also we also are doing discovery to figure out what's the customer doing now? What are the things have they tried? what they what do they understand and not understand about other solutions in the market? So we're doing discovery in there. We're also kind of waking them up a little bit to the pain, and we're educating them to the differences, the pros and cons of different approaches to the problem. So setup, follow through. So setup has three components. It's the insight, pros and cons of alternative approaches. And the third step is this alignment with our point of view on the the market, which I call the perfect world. So we're going to get agreement on this is what a perfect solution should look like or should do. Then once we have that, we switch to follow through. So let's start with the setup. So Setup is our insight into the market. So right from the beginning, we're saying, look, like, and the best way to think about insight is kind of like, it's not really the problem. It's kind of the problem behind the problem. It's the way we look at the problem, which is different than the way everybody else looks at the problem. And then we kind of go to the second thing, which is, look, if that's what we're really dealing with here, you know, we could do this in two or three different ways. So we're not necessarily picking on specific products, we're picking on approaches to the problem. You can approach it this way. You can approach it this way. You can, and, and this is good for this, bad for this. And we're having this discovery conversation with the customer. And the result of that is this perfect world where we say, hey, look, if we really wanted to get this done and knowing what we know about what works and doesn't work with the other solutions, can we all agree that a perfect solution would have to deliver ABC? Now, this is a very important point on the pitch. The customer is either with you or not. And so if you've done your job right, you get to this and you say, look, can we all agree it needs to do this? And if you've done your job right, customer's like, yeah, heck, who doesn't want that? Yeah, yeah, that's what we agree. Okay, great. Then we switch to the follow through, which is here's how we do it. So if the customer agrees with me in the setup, this deal is mine to lose, right? I've got you aligned with my individual point of view of the market. Nobody else can do these things. If you agree that the perfect solution needs to have this stuff, all I got to do is prove to you that I can do it. Then we move to the follow through. And
1: April, before we get to the follow through, just going back to the insight. What's the best way to figure out that insight, that core insight that is going to lead to your perfect world solution and that
2: resonates with them? Just some tips on that. Let me give you an example, because I think the easiest way to get your head around it is an example. I did some work with these folks, Help Scout. And yeah. so Help Scout entered the market, their customer service, customer success software, They compete with things like Zendesk. And actually a lot of companies that they sell to are what you would call digital only or digital native e-commerce type vendors. So they yeah. don't have stores, they're selling stuff online. So a lot of those vendors actually start by doing customer support. With a shared inbox and then they kind of graduate to something that looks more like help desk software their big differentiated value is that they're the only solution that can give you something that's really easy for your folks to adopt which is why people start with a shared inbox in the first place but also allows you to grow into these more advanced service functionality like assignments and groupings and all this stuff you get with help desk software and importantly they're, they look at customer success in a very different way. Because their customers are e-commerce vendors for the most part, those customers don't look at customer support as a cost center. Most help desk products were designed to take the cost out of customer service you know, they're pushing you to low cost channels. They assign you a ticket number. (laughs) You know, they're they're basically trying to get rid of you as fast and as, as, you know, low touch as they can. For these e-commerce vendors, they don't look at customer success like that. Like customer service is a growth driver. It's the only time you get to talk to your customers. You don't have salespeople, you don't have stores. And so customers or vendors like that, that are doing business online, they get that. If we can love the heck out of them in this interaction that becomes a growth driver. It drives loyalty, it drives repeat business, all that stuff. So that's the situation, right? If I was doing a normal product walkthrough demo of that, Mm -hmm. this is how this pitch would sound like. You'd walk in and I'd say, hey, you know, we do customer service software. This is great. Let me log in. Look at this thing. It looks like a shared inbox. We do this, we do this. And oh, hey, we have some advanced functions and, and blah, 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 feature, feature, feature. And that would be the end, right? The problem with that is like, I'm a customer and I'm looking at, maybe I use a shared inbox. This kind of looks like that. Or maybe I use Zendesk. It kind of looks like that too. Has some of those things. So why pick Help Scout? Instead, we do it the other way. So let's do it in my way. My way, we come in and we say, hey, you're here for a demo. I get it. But first, before we go in there, your e-commerce business, this is my insight. What we've seen is e-commerce businesses look at, customer service like a growth driver. They get that every interaction you have with the customer is really, really important. And they have some nice, they actually have a nice slide that talks about a good customer interaction can drive this much revenue. A bad customer interaction drives this much churn. And usually what they'll get from the e-commerce business is, yeah, dummy, we know that. Yeah, it's true. And then you go, okay. So here's your options. You could use a a shared inbox." And you know what's great about that? Super easy to use. It, no, nobody has a problem using it. Super easy to use. Like We love shared inboxes for that reason. The Downside is if you're successful, you'll outgrow it. You need these advanced features like prioritization and whatever. A lot of times that's why this customer's call and helps get in the first place. So what's your other option? The other option is use traditional help desk software. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, you know, it's pretty hard to use now. It's not as nice as the inbox. It gives you all the bells and whistles. That's good right? That's the good news. Bad news is your folks aren't going to love using it so much. And here's the real bad news. Everything in that product is designed to drive down cost. It is not designed to give your customer an amazing customer experience. Now, if I'm doing this with client, we're having a conversation, right? You guys use an inbox. What would you use? Are you looking at other things? Whatever. That's my pros and cons. And I get to perfect world. I'm like, look, so if no one, what we know, For e-commerce business, what does a perfect solution look like? Well, it should be as easy to use an inbox, right? It should should be easy to use as an inbox, but it should have this advanced functionality of a help desk so that I don't outgrow it. But it should also help me deliver an amazing customer experience. Again, at this point, you're either with me or you're not. But if you're with me, then you go, great. Let me show you how to do that with us. And then I say, look, is it easy to use? Look, it looks just like a share new box. It's amazing. Does it have all the bells and whistles you need? Yeah, it does. Let me show you how we do, or whatever, whatever. And then here's how we deliver amazing customer experience. We're not giving you a ticket number, you know, and I show you all the cool stuff we do to deliver an amazing experience. Like, which of those pitches do you think closes more business? Like, at the end of that pitch, it is absolutely clear why you would pick Help Scout." over anybody else. And that's what we need to do in a sales pitch. We're still showing them product, we're still walking them through, but we're doing this little bit at the beginning that's essentially teaching them about the whole market and all their options and how we fit in the middle of that.
1: I love it. So the setup, three components, start with the market insight. And I I genuinely love that. It's such an empathetic way to to relate to the actual customer. Then get into alternative approaches. And uh, then you're essentially, you're leading yourself. Pros and
2: cons of alternative approaches. And then third piece is, I all have the perfect world. But what we're doing is we're getting agreement on purchase criteria, basically. Like, you want a thing that ticks these three bucks, right? And you might say, nah, you know, we don't actually think it's a growth driver. We just want to drive the cost down and whatever. Let that business go, man. Zendesk is going to beat you all day on that.
1: Love it. Going back to the second component of the setup. You, by design, use the words alternative approaches, not competitors. Correct. And that's in your obviously awesome book as well. And uh, this is part of your sales pitch. The distinction between the two doesn't
2: matter. It does. So I could have said in that second step, if I take Help Scout as an example, in that second step, I could have just said Zendesk. Mm -hmm. And said, well, Zendesk does it like this. There's way more help desk software out there than Zendesk. But the reality is they all have the same approach. I take out the entire world of help desk software (laughs) instead of just picking on one or two because the customer doesn't know. The customer might say, well, I don't know if Zendesk is different than this other thing. And so I took out Zendesk, but I didn't take out the 3,000 other help desk software competitors that are out there. And the reality is this is what customers don't know yet. Like we spend all day, thinking about the competitive landscape and thinking about how we fit in there and how we're going to be differentiated and all this stuff. We spend all day thinking about this stuff. Customers don't know anything. They come out and and they're like, "Oh gosh, we got to buy we got to buy, you know, customer service software. We've never done that before. We don't know who the players are. We don't know what the pluses and minuses are." And these customers spend an eternity surfing around the web, looking at places like G2 Crowd, and Gartner quadrants and all this other stuff. And what do they get? Here's 10 you should look at. And all these esoteric little things about why they're good or bad. Like I'm on a G2 crowd thing. Who's in the top quadrant? There's 20. How do oh, I know yeah. how Definitely. to even short? And some of them are for big companies, some of them are for small. Because, like, how do I even make a short list? Super hard. And so, if we're selling something and there's a sales touch in there, our job as salespeople, is to help people confidently make a decision. So coming back to that stat that you quoted before that 40 to 60% of B2B sales purchases end in no decision because people can't figure out what to do. We need to help solve that problem. And who better than us? We spend all day thinking about the market. The person trying to buy help desk software for a e-commerce business they've never bought that before they don't know they know some stuff they've gone they, for sure they've done their research maybe they got a short list but it's actually super helpful if we can help them bucket the alternatives into approaches and right. that bucketing might actually result in the customer going oh actually you know what we're actually okay with just shared inbox we don't need those other we don't need those bells and whistles we're not growing business is flat. We'll talk to you next year. And that's okay because we just disqualified you. So this step in the sales process is actually what, you know, what the Mad Dixon in Challenger Sale would call commercial teaching, right? We're teaching you what are the pros and cons of different approaches for different kinds of customers. If you're really, really small, shared inbox is fine. If you're a giant customer service organization that needs all the bells and whistles and your primary worry is it costs us too much to service these folks, you should get help Alpsest software. <laughs> but right. if you're in the middle, you should look at us. That's all the answer, that's what we're trying to give you. A product walkthrough doesn't give you this. A, oh, this is a problem, this is solution, that doesn't give you that. Like the way we're doing these first sales calls isn't actually doing the job that the buyer needs it to do.
1: I love this setup. And really you call it the setup. It's a line on the market insight. go through the pros and cons of the alternative approaches. You lead them into the perfect world that obviously points to your core strengths. And we, now- we wouldn't
2: have built it if we didn't think it was perfect. Right. Right. right? And now
1: you do the follow through. So follow-through.
2: here's how the follow through works. So generally, so after we get to the things, we say, Hey, can we all agree that what we really want are these three things, right? You know, and the customer says, Right, yeah, dummy, I love that. But <laughs> so, yeah, if that existed, I would have that. And you go, Great. Now let me tell you about us. Usually there's an introduction. So the introduction is, hey, we're Help Scout. We were built from the ground up to be as easy as an inbox with advanced customer service features. And delivering an amazing customer experience. So I got to kind of, and so there's where you would introduce your market category. You know, this is what we are. This is where it goes in. And then we would, we give you just enough so that you know what we are. And then we switch to, here's the value we can deliver. And this is the meat of the sales pitch. If I've got a 45 minute first call with a customer, I would expect to spend 30 of it on this value piece, because this is this is a value we can deliver that no one else can, and here's how we get it done. A lot of folks do that with a demo, if you have a demoable product, and that makes sense. Some folks are just doing it with slides and screenshots, depending on the product. In B2B, sometimes we have a demo, sometimes we don't. But if we have a demo for that, we now have a very different structure for that demo, because we're like, hey, we're Help Scout, and we do this, let me show you how we do it. So first one, first part, pillar of value is, easy to use as shared inbox. Let me show it to you. <laughs> Look at it. It looks like a shared Let inbox. Let me show, show you how we go around. around. Second pillar is give you all, you never grow it. We're going to give you all the stuff you get in the mature thing. Let me show you that. So I show you a bunch of the mature things. So you're feeling good that it's got all the things, bells and whistles that you needed to do. And then the last one is this idea of delivering an amazing experience. And I can show you some examples of that. So this is, so we're in the value step. So introduction differentiated value. And then we have three kind of steps at the end. So after differentiated value, typically we have a step that is called proof. And proof is I got proved that I could do what I just said I could do. (laughs) So often that's, I got a customer case study. So, Hey, we could do it for you. We did it for, you know, your competitor or this other company that looks just like you. Uh, right. So a lot of times that's customer sex. Sometimes it's not a customer story. Sometimes it's, I have third-party validation. I'm making a claim about performance or something. I have a third-party validation on that. Maybe I have something else. At IBM, we used to do things. We call them sparklers, right? We could prove we did this because we we won a bloody award for it. We're really good at this because we got 59 patents at it. You should believe. <laughs> at startups, we're typically walking through a customer example that matches the customer situation. So that's the proof step. Then we have two more steps till we're done. The next step is an optional step. Not everybody has to do it, but most of my clients that I work with do this optional step, and it's what we call the objection step. A good sales rep is gonna handle any objections that come up as we're walking through the, the demo and the presentation. But there's an optional step to handle a major objection that we think we don't want them to leave the room without understanding our response to that potential objection, because we know it comes up in a lot of people's minds, but they don't necessarily ask about it outright. So right. that usually includes, like the big one sometimes is pricing, where the customer's like, "That all well, sounds good, buddy, but <laughs> we don't have the budget for it. And so sometimes you'll present pricing, sometimes you'll just present the pricing model, and that's enough to establish, you know, the customer can kind of do math in their head and figure it out. So that's one. The other one that you'll get a lot, particularly in B2B is, well, this sounds great, but the change management to get there, man, like, how are we going to, how's it going to fit with my existing stuff? How are we going to migrate from the crap we have now? Is it going to integrate with my existing whatever? And so a lot of companies in that step will do a, you know, here's how a project's going to work. Right. And that's where we handle all those objections. Don't worry. We have professional services that can help with this. We have onboarding services that helps with this. We have an open API. Here's how it works. We can integrate with anything, and we got people that can help you. We have pre-built integrations with this, 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 where, you know whatever compliant, don't worry about your security thing. like whatever that is, we'll handle it in that step. Some companies don't have anything like that, so they don't they skip this step. Most of the companies I work with, it's either, how do we get started? How does a project look? How's this going to work? Like, how do we do change management? Or it's something to do with pricing. And then the last, we finish up the sales pitch with the ask. So big companies don't have this problem. They they know how to do this. We get to the end and then we're like, we're negotiating. What's the next step? Do we want to do a proof of concept or not? Do we want to have another meeting? If so, who are the people that need to be in the room? So experienced salespeople would never walk out of there without having the next step defined. But you'll see in startups sometimes where a lot of times you'll have the founder selling and the founder doesn't have a lot of sales experience. So we put that in there just to know, like you shouldn't be walking out of there without getting the next step. Sometimes the next step is, dude, can I just send you the proposal? Slap down your card, let's get this done. So whatever it is, we end the meeting with whatever the next step is.
1: And before we get into, how do you know this is all going to work? You put it all together and and how do you test this? How do you know it's going to work? Before we get to that, April, I just want to marry your two frameworks here. So you have your five components of positioning. Yeah. And then you have your eight components. Yes. Of sales pitch. Right. Can you do a quick correlation of the five to the eight. You, you need this to do that.
2: Right. So let's look at it this way. So, well, so here's the thing. People want to just go in and fix the sales pitch. And I appreciate that. But if your positioning is weak, your sales pitch is going to suck. That's just how it works. And in particular, the core of a good sales pitch is having a really, really tight handle on your differentiated value. If you don't have that, I can't help you on the sales pitch side. So there's a reason why in most of the work I do with clients, we're going to do the positioning first and then we're going to map it over. Because if, if the differentiated value is mushy, the whole sales pitch is mushy. Now let's Mm -hmm. talk about where value fits into this, right? So I have my five component pieces of positioning. Who do I compete with? How am I different? What's the value I can deliver that no one else can? Who am I going after? So what's my definition of best fit customer? Market category, you know, what's what's the market I intend to win? First step is insight. Insight has a direct relationship with your differentiated value. And the best way to think about it is, what do I need to understand as a customer or a prospect, what does a prospect need to understand in order to understand the importance of my differentiated value? So, in the case of Help Scout, the insight is customer service is not a cost center, man. It's a growth driver. If you don't believe that, I got nothing to sell you. And so, we're going to start with that right up, That's my point of view. That's the reason Help Scout built what they built so i'm going to drive right at that right from the beginning but i don't know that if i don't understand that differentiated value i don't know how to start it's it's not like the problem the problem is i want to do better customer support right but why do you want to do the problem because it's a growth driver man that's why so it's the problem behind the problem it's the problem inside the problem it's your insight into the problem that's where we start so we start there so we say okay so that has a direct relationship differentiated value direct relationship to your insight, it's the reverse of your insight. is what do I have to understand in order to know that your differentiated value is important? So that's the first thing. Second step, pros and cons of alternative approaches, that maps exactly to your alternate solutions. So competitive alternatives, that maps exactly in there. So in your positioning, you know we're figuring out who the real competitive alternatives are. We're grouping them into approaches. We're talking about pluses and minuses of those approaches that come straight out of your positioning. Perfect world where we say, hey, can we all agree that our perfect solution does A, B, C? What are those? There's my three pillars of differentiated values, differentiated value. So then I get switched to the follow through. The first step is the introduction and that's where we introduce the market category. The Market category is our starting point for a prospect to understand what we are. So we'll introduce it there. So, okay, here's Help Scout. What are we? A customer service software for folks that want to drive growth. And then we move into value. Where does that come from? It's directly mapped to our differentiated value, cut and paste, directly out of our positioning. Here's the value. Here are the features that enable that value. The, re- the last three things, proof is customer case study, whatever. What we're doing is we're, we're architecting the case study to map back to the value. Here's the proof that we could deliver What we say we can do, oh, I got a customer saying, you know what? It was great. It was super easy. That inbox thing was super easy. Our people just came over and it was no big deal to implement it. And oh, by the way, all the bells and whistles, fancy features is great. We're never going to outgrow this thing. And do you know what the best part is? We've increased retention by this much and revenue by this much. All those things are going to map to your differentiated value. So The proof needs to map back to your differentiated value. And then objections is its own thing. Sometimes when I'm doing a positioning workshop with companies, they'll come up with things that feel like value, but they're mm-hmm. actually objections. So people will say, well, you know, like we have to be SOC 2 compliant, otherwise people can't buy us. And that's a value prop, like we should put that in there in a value prop. And it's actually not. It's an objection. They don't buy you because they're SOC 2 compliant, but... They could reject you because you don't have that. <laughs> so that's where objections come from. And usually I got salespeople in the room and they'll say, look, like we can't leave the meeting without doing pricing because everybody would be worried it's too expensive or everybody's worried that it's too hard to adopt it. So we got to address that there. So it's sometimes things that companies might feel its value, but it's actually objections. So that's where that stuff goes. And then the ask is simply your next step in your sales process. So that's right. how it maps.
1: Second, last question. Ready? Yeah. You did your positioning. You marry that to build out the eight elements of your sales pitch. How do we know this is going to work? What do we do next?
2: Yeah. So I think it's really important to test the sales pitch. Usually, so here's what I recommend, like when we're actually doing this stuff. One of my big recommendations on the positioning side is this needs to be a cross-functional exercise because we got to get everybody aligned on this positioning. When I do the work with companies, we also do the storyboard for the sales pitch together with the whole team because everybody needs to understand the story and how to tell it. Product needs to get that. Marketing needs to get it. Obviously, sales needs to really get it. So once we have the storyboard for the sales pitch, what I generally recommend is marketing and sales are going to work together on making that storyboard an actual pitch, which means your beautiful slides with your beautiful graphics and your beautiful stuff. And if there's a demo, we're going to work together on architecting that demo so that it maps to your differentiated value pillars. And then we need a script typically. So I'm a big believer in scripts. I don't think sales reps should just look at the slides and make stuff up. We want deck demo script. If you don't have a demo, that's fine. Then it's just deck and script deck demo script marketing and sales works on that together. And then here's how I recommend we test it. So I do not recommend that you take that deck and throw it over the wall and say, tough luck, Chuck, over there in sales. This is your new deck because sales will kill it. Even if they don't love the old deck, they're comfortable with the old deck. They know the old deck. They have a talk track that they don't have to look at the notes anymore on the old deck. They have a joke that they tell in between slide two and slide three, and it works great, and they don't want to change anything. So instead of doing that, what we do, We pick the best sales rep, the best Mm -hmm. one, and we bring them over and we force them. We force train them on the new pitch deck. So we spend a lot of time with them, marketing and sales leader, both together, get them all trained up, make them pitch us a whole bunch of times, get them comfortable with the new demo. And then we take that best sales rep and have them test the pitch on qualified prospects not existing customers because they've been already polluted with your old positioning and not people that aren't in an active buying process. We need to know how this thing works in the real situation. The real situation is I got a qualified prospect. It's coming over to sales. Let's do the first call with it. So usually what we have is sales leadership and marketing leadership or whoever you designate this to. We're going to start doing test runs on this new pitch. After every pitch, we huddle and we say, okay, what's working and not working in this pitch? You might decide like this word's not working. We got to fix it. Or we have this graphic and it's confusing the heck out of everybody. We got to go back and redesign the graphic. So we'll do a bunch of test pitches just to you know, work the kinks out of this thing. Now we do enough of these. What'll happen is your best sales rep will get sick of you wanting to debrief on every single pitch. And at some point your best sales rep will say, look, we're done. We don't have to iterate on this anymore. This works. And critically, it works better than the old one. We don't know if it's driving better results yet or not, because we got long sales cycles and all the rest of it. But I trust my best salesperson. If my best salesperson says, this is a better pitch than the old one, you know what? It is. So then at that point, we say, good, the pitch has now been validated. And I get that salesperson who is already very comfortable pitching it and believes in it to train the rest of the team? So I can record that person doing the pitch and they can go trade the rest of the team and say, Look, you know that big deal we have cooking at Oracle? I got that with this sales pitch, you know, like this way better than the old one. If you're still using the old one, you're a loser, right? And now I have sales talking to sales instead of marketing saying, we know nothing about sales, but please use our stupid deck. And then once that's done, like I said, then it goes back over to marketing and marketing can use that finished sales story to inform what they're doing in marketing messaging, which in my opinion is super important. And then we're going to have this consistent story across the whole pipeline. So that's how I would do it, like in a really practical way.
1: I love it. I love it. Folks, if you want to help buyers confidently make a purchase decision, first step, obviously awesome. You need the book because positioning is an input into the sales pitch. Positioning is your efficiency tool for growth. It helps you focus.
2: Then... Step two, on which date, April? Oh, so the new book comes October the 4th. I have, yeah, October the 4th is officially out, but you know what? Uh, Listening to this, I don't know when this particular episode drops, but pre-orders are actually officially, have actually officially begun. So you should be able to go on Amazon and pre-order it. I'm super excited. The other thing I'm going to throw out there, just for fun, is... I've been doing a deep dive on the previous book and this book on a new podcast, which is called Positioning with April Dunford. And so if you think this is all interesting and in between now and October 4th or whatever you want to do with the deep dive on things. So every week, I basically pick a sub-segment or a subtopic that covers these two topics and I do the big deep dive on it. Occasionally I got a special guest like I had Matt Dixon and that was really cool because he changed my thinking on a lot of this stuff. And I've had Bob Mesta, who's one of the fathers of jobs to be done. And so anyway, so I'm going to plug the podcast too. If you're into audio content, it's available in all the pod places where you get podcasts. Then there's, there's a video too. So you can go look it up on YouTube. Brilliant. April. Thank
1: you again, again, and again, and again, you, you're so generous with us. I'm very, very, thankful uh, i was there uh before the obviously awesome book when you i know the first back when i
2: was a nobody man <laughs> no no,
1: no.
0: <laughs>
2: i remember that first conference though it was such an eye-opener to me that was the first time i had ever seen a room full of product marketers like i'd never seen that before like it blew my little mind i was like this is so cool i'm in a room full of product marketing people i would never seen that before and it was big right
1: we needed your help then we need your help now with sales pitch so thank you and folks go get the book pre-order it now or wait till october 4th listen to april's podcast i i do religiously it's absolutely pragmatic is the best way to say it and how to position and pitch thank you april appreciate the time
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the market if you liked what you heard please share it with someone you think would enjoy it. Want to stay up to date on our latest episodes and more? Subscribe to our newsletter. The link is in the show notes. See you next time. The Markitect is presented by Pavilion, powered by Casted, and produced by Share Your Genius.